Good to see you guys this morning. I just came from our men's retreat yesterday. I was there Friday night. I was preaching there on Saturday morning. Then a few of our other campuses were hitting, uh, hitting up uh, the guys on Saturday night and Sunday morning, really right now. So Pastor Dan Stewart's preaching this morning. We had about 300 men that are up there, 40 or 50 or so from this campus. And so uh, all of you, first of all, women who have a husband at the men's retreat, um, I want to share something with you that shocked me. Now, I just need to get this off my chest. I'm tired this morning, and the reason I'm tired is because I, I finished up my talk pretty late at night. They had chili dogs till 1 a.m. on, you know, because everybody wants to eat a chili dog at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, on, I guess that would be Saturday morning. I was kind of finishing up my thoughts, getting all that stuff together for the Saturday morning session so I could be prepared to preach. And I went to bed, really kind of had everything settled in. It was maybe 2.15, something like that. So I knew it was going to be a short night. I put in the earplugs, had Hunter's earplugs, put them in, took a second pillow, put that on top of my head. It did nothing <laughs> to distort the sounds coming out of some of these men. They, they, it, was, it was almost not human sounding. It was, it was like there was a bunch of Sasquatches just in, in that dorm room. I was trying to sleep and so badly. I should have gotten up and I should have recorded some of these guys because I don't even know who it was. But I know for a fact there is no way that if you're the wives that are here, there's no way you're sleeping in the same bed. There's no way. It's impossible. I was in the same room and I felt like the whole floor was like vibrating from this, it was like they would rise and rise and rise, and then they'd like choke <laughs> and restart the whole process. And, and so I'm not doing that next year. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm paying for the upgrade, I think, to get a room by myself because the, the earplugs, nothing. It did nothing for me. So I just, before I preach today, I just wanted to say I'm a little tired, and it's your husband's fault, and, um, and, and also I feel bad for you, and... Um, I'm praying for you, and I just had to get that off my chest today. I just needed to. So anyways, where we're going to go this morning, a very uh, a unique place. Uh, when's the last time you've turned in a Bible to the book of Haggai? And that's where we're going. So the book of Haggai, of all places to land the week after Easter. This is at the end of your Old Testament, tucked away between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Yes, those are books in the Bible. Uh, they are before you get to the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we'll start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. If you just go back a little bit, you'll see Malachi there. Go back a few more, and you'll find this short little book, just two chapters long, 38 verses of Scripture. And we're going to be working through this over the next few weeks. I need you just to put on, at least for the first few moments, certainly today, just to track with some of the history that I need to give you and some of the background so you can understand where we are in the context of the story of the Bible and the meta-narrative or the grand narrative of the scriptures. So we're going to spend a little bit of time today setting the context, so you're just going to need to kind of track with me through that, and then we'll see what this has to say to us today and how this is relevant to our lives. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 11. The prophet writes this, in the second year of Darius the king, 
In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. The very first verse here gives us vital information. So here's where you need to track with me. Haggai was a prophet, and a prophet... As a, as a prophet, he is meant to be the spokesperson on behalf of God to the people of God. And Haggai is given a word of the Lord. And that is the phrase that you'll find throughout the Old Testament of the Scriptures, where it'll say that a prophet receives a word from the Lord. This is the message that God has communicated to him in a unique way to deliver to his people. So basically, God speaks, the prophet hears him, and the prophet communicates what God has spoken and the word of the Lord for Haggai was five specific messages that we have here in these, in these 38 verses. Five short messages. And these five messages all came during a period of four months, just four months, between late August, what, was, what, what the Jews called their sixth month, and mid-December. In the year, we're certain of it because of some other things within the text. We'll get to that in a minute. The year is 520 B.C., so this is 2,500 years ago. It says this uh, was the second year of Darius the king. Now, he was the king of an ancient empire called the Persians. So if you know much about ancient history, you had the Assyrians who became a world power, and they overtook the Israelites in 722, at least the northern tribes. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then came the Babylonians, the Babylon Empire. Then after the Babylonian Empire came the Persian Empire. And so that is who Darius is the king of. And so he gives us this detail. He says it was the second year of Darius the king. That's how we land on the date that we have. And then he gives us some information about who's leading the people of the Israelites. Zerubbabel is the governor and Joshua is the high priest. Not Joshua, you know, in the walls of Jericho. This is a different Joshua who is the high priest of the people at this time. And so why didn't they just tell us the date? That would have been a whole lot easier. 
Well, back then, time was counted by referring to who was the king. And people still do this today. When our team from Woodside Romeo, there's about 15 of us, went to Haiti a year and a half or so ago, uh, there was a, a, an elderly woman in a remote village that we went to, and we were talking about her life, and we asked her when she was born. She didn't give us a year. She just told us who the political leader was at the time. That's how she counted time. She counted time by the political leader of the day. That's how they used to count time as well, by the political leaders of the day. So the reason why this message was dripping with tension was because of the timing. So let me just give you a little history here. Remember that in in the biblical story, after Egypt, the Israelites eventually see God's promises fulfilled, and they establish themselves within the promised land. And they cry out to God during this time when they were setting up their kingdom there. They cry out to God basically saying, all the other nations on this planet have a king. We want a king. God said, I'm your king. They said, we're not satisfied with that. And uh, to his displeasure, but to their pleasure, he did allow them to have a king. So hence they had King Saul and then King David and then King Solomon. When Solomon's son took over the kingdom of Israel... Uh, He basically treated 10 tribes to the north very poorly, and he treated them with contempt. He treats them severely, and the kingdom splits in two in just that short order. Just after three kings had a united kingdom, the fourth king, it split in two. Ten tribes, remember Israel is 12. Ten tribes go to the north, they're called the northern tribes of Israel, and two go to the south, really basically referred to as the Israelites or Judah. Now, the northern tribes became apostate immediately. They became apostate, and eventually they're taken captive by those Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern tribes, they teeter-totter between following God's commands and doing their own thing, rebelling, following God, rebelling. Eventually, they are overtaken by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And at that time, the temple... The temple in Jerusalem, the flagship of the Jewish faith, was completely destroyed. It's wiped out. So this little book is the first time that God has spoken to Israel through a prophet since the Babylonians came and wiped out the city and took the people away. It had been 70 years. And for the Israelites, that was a very long period of time. For God not to speak to them through a prophet. And so this little book talks about this. And what happens is 50,000 Jews were given permission to return to Jerusalem. Now under the Persian rule. They're, They're given permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And this was what was written down in the books Nehemiah and Ezra. So if you ever read those books in the Old Testament, that's what those books detail. And so what they had to do was they were over here in Susa. They were taken to Babylon. The capital of the Persians became Susa. But to travel from Babylon back to Jerusalem, you couldn't just go straight, which would have been about 500 miles. That's all a desert. You'd die. So what they needed to do was follow the Euphrates River. They'd go up this way, and then they'd head south. It was about a 1,000-mile journey, and they did this with 50,000 people. There's no planes, there's no trains, there's no automobiles. It was quite the caravan. And so they make their way back. And the rebuilding project did not go as planned. It was filled with problems and delays. 
and persecutions and issues. They laid the foundation to the temple. They did it in the first two years. And when they laid the foundation and they set the last stone, there was a massive celebration. Look, we're, we're gaining ground. We're rebuilding the temple. We're accomplishing the very reason why God sent us back. God sent us back to rebuild the city, to rebuild this temple, and we're, we're making ground. But then after that two-year period... The Samaritans to the north, they hated the Jews, the Jews hated them, they complained and they convinced the king of the Persian Empire to sign a decree that they should not re-fortify the city. And so they stopped working. They became distracted by other things. They became sidetracked. And they walked by the foundation that they had set without putting on another stone, not for one year, not for two years, for 16 years. Nothing. They were sent by God to rebuild this temple. They began the work. The work stalled out when the persecution came, and then it collected dust for 16 years. They had lost their motivation. They'd lost their sense of purpose. They had lost their passion and started going after all kinds of pet projects that had nothing to do with their purpose. So God graciously steps in and gives Haggai five messages to encourage them and get them focused on their purpose. Rebuild the temple. That was their purpose. Why would God care so much about this temple? Why would God care so much about this temple? Because his people and this place, the temple in Jerusalem, were meant to be a lighthouse to the world. It was this place, this temple, that at that time God was using his people, using that temple to communicate his glory to the world. And it was good news. It was meant to be good news. You might be thinking here today, what does a pep talk to rebuild a sacred worship building to a small remnant of Jewish people who lived 2,500 years ago have to do with us? (laughs) Everything. Everything. And you'll see it, I think, very soon. This book gets after our priorities. It gets after our priorities. Where do we prioritize the kingdom of God? Where do we prioritize the purposes of God? The gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Are these just things we fit into the calendar when we can? Or is this something that actually then changes the way that we calendar it all? It is the thing that controls our lives, God's purposes, what he's called us to do. This book is a stick of motivational dynamite reminding us of the grace of God and charging us to walk obediently with God in all things. So a lot of people, just like back then today, they might be thinking, just as I read you this text this morning, and by the way, that was a very long introduction. Maybe you found your way to Haggai now. So I gave you all that time. Hopefully, hopefully you're there now. So these people, they knew that something was wrong. Things just weren't quite right for the Israelites. It's just off. The plans were not going as expected. Their joy became uh, few and far between. They became a joyless people. Their expectations weren't met. Discouragement had set in. They had a lackadaisical indifference to the things of God. The the advancement of God's kingdom, that wasn't a priority. They lacked passion to make disciples. They wondered where God went because things were just different now. The temple that used to be so magnificent, now a few generations later, it's just in shambles with nothing but a foundation. This is how Israel felt. 
But my hunch is that every single person sitting in this room this morning has felt this way in their relationship with God as well. The passion's gone, distracted, not sure what he's up to, what he's doing. Uh, sure, passion, desire to make disciples, it's kind of there, not, not really. Things aren't going the way they're supposed to. It's not running smoothly. Life just is not going well. And well, I don't mean by that health and wealth. I mean the spirit inside of you is not settled, which has nothing to do with health and wealth. That's where they were. But God wanted his people to see that their stalled out lives were the result of their own misplaced priorities. He hadn't checked out. They did. He hadn't wandered off. They did. He wasn't indifferent. They were. And in the first message from God through Haggai to Israel, and by extension to us, he says God's people are blessed when they pursue God's priorities. And when we do not pursue God's priorities, something different. This leaves us with a a question. How do we know whether we are pursuing God's priorities? How do you know whether right now in your life you are pursuing God's priorities for your life? Do you even believe that his priorities for you are good? Or do you believe maybe, man, if I pursue that, that will bring a future that is not good, something that I do not desire? Do you trust him that his priorities for you are actually for your good? So how do we know whether we are pursuing God's priorities? Haggai gives us two answers to this question. It's incredibly simple. The first is, well, first you have to review your heart. Review your heart. Let's just start working through this text. He begins verse 2. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. So let's just pause there for a second. The Lord, you'll see that's in all caps. The all capital letters, remember, that refers to the sacred, divine, and unique name of God, Yahweh, that was given to him, uh, that was given to them through Moses. And here he's called Yahweh of hosts. It means that he is the Lord Almighty who has the authority and power over the hosts of heaven and the hosts of the earth. Why would Haggai, the prophet, use this name and bring this to the attention of the Israelites? Because he wants them to know that this voice, this Lord, this is the voice you should be listening to over and against any other voice around you. Whether it's the voices from the Samaritans who are trying to persecute you. Whether it's the voices from the Persians who rule over you. All of these voices, they might be in your life, but what what must carry the day is the voice of the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, because his voice truly is the one that trumps the authority of all others. And so this is what he tells to his people. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So they've got their excuses. God orchestrated their freedom. He orchestrated their freedom from Babylon to send them back to Jerusalem for this purpose. And the project had been collecting dust for 16 years. Their excuse, it's not a good time. You ever used that one before? It's not a good time. God, I know this is kind of what you're calling me to do, but it's not a good time. There's other things going on right now. I've got other problems I have to face. There's other things I need to deal with. It's not a good time. 
So they said, it's not a good time. And they might have even used the excuse, well, the decree of that Persian king, he forbade us, so it's not a good time. Not exactly. See, the decree that was made, it was a decree not to fortify the city. That has nothing to do with rebuilding the temple, per se. So they were just using it as an excuse. And you could see how they would have done this very easily. God sent them for this very purpose, their excuse, the decree forbids us to build. It's not a good time. We've got other things going on in our lives. And the excuse exposes their heart. And their heart, what's the attitude behind the excuse? Apathy. If we were to choose the attitude behind many, many evangelical Christians within our society today, would apathy be an appropriate adjective? This is something that I think infects the heart of many believers at a time and a day in a society like ours. Most people, many people, just don't care. They just don't care. God's priorities, I'm not even sure if I've taken time to think about what they are. I'm just, I don't care. I've got other things going on in my life. It's just not a good time. Look at the next excuse, verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So you might be thinking, what's a paneled house? I thought paneled houses, those old wood panels, that's like old school. We don't do that anymore, right? Well, paneled houses at this time, this describes a house that was built in luxury. It was a custom-built home. It was a home fit for the elite classes of society, a paneled home at that time. So they had time to build their immaculate homes, and the whole time, God's purpose and priority to rebuild the temple had been doing nothing. Sat there in ruins. They could have harvested the trees to get the money. Maybe that was their excuse. Maybe they thought, you know, we don't have the money. We don't have the resources to rebuild the temple. Well, maybe, maybe they might be thinking we don't have the resources because we just spent all our money on our paneled houses. They could have gone and chopped down some of the, the trees and harvested them, and they could have gotten the money, but they chose not to. And what this excuse exposes, the luxury of their homes, the ruins of the temple, was their pursuit of materialism. That's the heart attitude. Is there a few people we think maybe that sometimes in our society and our faith that struggle with this issue? So God says, consider your ways. It literally means set your heart upon your ways. Consider what has your heart. Consider what holds your heart. Is it my plans or your plans? Then look at verse 6. We'll see the final reason the final excuse you have sown much and harvested little you eat but you never have enough you drink but you never have your fill you clothe yourselves but no one is warm and he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes he's saying your plans that you've been working so hard at they're not working and what have you gained from all of your work all you've gained from all of your toil is frustration not peace Prioritizing your plans over mine will lead to frustration. That's what God is saying. 
When you prioritize your plans over mine, you will be left with this feeling inside of you. And how many of us feel this way at times? They, they were left with this feeling where they were insatiable. They were unsatisfied, discontented. Their excuse, we won't be satisfied with this temple. It'll never be what it used to be. The, the old one was glorious. This, this one's not going to even come close to it. it. It exposes their insatiable appetite and their lack of trust in God. Their lack of trust in what he had planned and how it could have been far beyond what they could have imagined. So God says, take the time to review what you've been doing and where it's taking you. Consider your ways. Review your heart and set your heart on my agenda. Friends, this is not just a message for a group of people who lived 2,500 years ago. Wow. Man, if we had a prophet come speak to us today, I feel like the words would be very similar at times. I'm not talking about our church building here at all. It has nothing to do with that. I'm talking about our priorities. I'm talking about our priorities. What are your priorities what are God's priorities for you? Do you know what those two lists even are? What are your excuses? I've got mine. How about you? Secondly, here's another answer. Review your actions. Review your heart. Review your actions. Our actions demonstrate our priorities. God wants our hearts because out of the heart flows our actions. So the Lord gives the Israelites here three commands. Look at verse 7 and 8. He gives them three commands. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Check your heart. Review your heart. Set your heart on his priorities. Go up to the hills, command one, and bring wood, command two, and build the house, command three. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Not very complex here. And by the way, it's the exact same command that God gave them in Ezra chapter 1 verse 2 20 years ago. His message had not changed. His priority had not changed. His purpose for them had not changed. It was the same thing. They had just been walking by the foundation. They'd been walking by those stones for 16 years doing nothing. So he tells them again. And then he gives the reason for his, for his command, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The glory of God is the highest priority of God always, always. Here's the thing for us. When we understand that God's glory is our highest aim, we also need to believe in faith that that's also our highest good. That when we live to bring God glory, that is not for for, for our life to become some kind of unraveling, frustrated thing, that, that is for our good. When we bring God glory, it's for our good. And so God's telling his people, you're doing this task, and maybe to you it doesn't seem like much, but, but it brings me glory. And if you do the things that bring me glory, then you will be filled with my good, with peace, with intangible things that money could never buy. God confronts them with what happens when their priorities are not aligned to his. So they're doing their own thing. He's asked them to do something else, and so this is what happened to him. He said, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. 
And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. This is the third time, by the way, he uses the title. It, it, it kind of gets repetitive, right? Why does Haggai keep saying the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts? He says it over and over because he's reminding them over and over again, you need to understand who it is that's speaking to you. And, and he's reminding them, he's making the point, it would be wise to get with the Lord of hosts program and priorities instead of continuing to go after your own. So I'm going to keep giving you the title, he says, so I'm reminding you to go after his priorities, not your own. And because you've done this, look at verse 9, the rest of it, because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, here's what happens. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil... And what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Basically, everything you're working to do will simply frustrate you. Have you wondered, Israel, why over the last 16 years you've been working so hard? You've been going after all this stuff, but you're still frustrated. Have you wondered why for these last 16 years, maybe you've been praying and praying and praying, but it seems to be going nowhere? Have you wondered why your peace seems gone, why your joy seems gone, why you feel unsatisfied? Have you wondered what happened? Haggai is charging them, consider your ways. The reason is your priorities are misplaced. Your priorities are misplaced. In case you haven't connected all the dots yet, let me, let me help, and I know this is a little strong, Maybe it's a little bit of hyperbole even, but I think it gets the point across. What would disturb you the most, thinking of your priorities? What would disturb you the most? A scratch on your car or a person dying without Christ? Missing an episode of your favorite television show or missing a prayer gathering at a church? Missing a day of work or missing a worship service? Your garden not growing or your church not growing? Someone who took some of your stuff and hasn't returned it yet or terrorists who took the lives of people in Egypt? Losing your cell phone you've had for a month or losing the Bible you've had for years? Getting a ticket for speeding or disobeying one of God's laws? Not pleasing your boss or not pleasing God. Missing a workout to shape your body or missing time with the Lord to shape your soul. What would disturb you the most? My house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. What disturbed Jesus the most? What disturbed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the most? Jesus' priorities, we know this for a fact, they were aligned with the Father's priorities. And I'm not going to assume that 
we all know what God's priorities are. So, so let me remind us this morning, Jesus made it abundantly clear. They guided, these priorities guided his entire life, and they are meant to guide our lives as well. So let me just read from each of the Gospels. I'll just pull a passage from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's what Jesus says are the priorities that he was after. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom and uh, first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Mark 1.14, the time is fulfilled. The time is now, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And one more, John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, here are his words, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What were Jesus' priorities? What disturbed him? What moved him? What motivated him? It was always these things. Preach the gospel. Build the kingdom. Save the lost. Glorify God. That was it. He said it over and over and over again through his actions, through his words, through his sermons, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his conversations after he resurrected, all the way through his ascension. Preach the gospel, build the kingdom, save the lost, glorify God. Preach the gospel, build the kingdom, save the lost, glorify God. Over and over and over. This is what he gave his life for. How do we know whether we are pursuing God's priorities? Many ways, it's quite simple. Do our priorities then, as we review our heart and review our actions, align with Jesus? Do they align with Jesus? Where do those things fall on your priority list? Well, God, I, I don't have time now. I don't have the resources. I, 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 I'm busy. I've got other distractions. There's issue. There's so many reasons why we give, so many excuses that all expose our hearts. I, I do it all the time. We've become masters at this. And so we see here that Jesus gives us a better way. And, and ultimately, you might look at that and be like, how's that better? Look where it got him. Let's think about that for a moment. Where did it get him? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And upon his name, every knee shall bow. His priorities resulted in an eternity of glory that was always his, because he's God. And so he says, take my priorities. Those are your priorities if you call yourself a follower. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's where this starts Maybe you've had a lot of priorities in your life, a lot of things to do, but maybe you felt frustrated and you never felt at peace. Did you know that Jesus came to bring peace to you and to your soul? That he died in our place for our sins so that we might be freed, forgiven, 
returned, reconciled with our creator. There's no other way. We can't work our way to it. He came and did that work for us. It starts there. And if you haven't given your life to him, it's simply an acknowledgement through faith of who he is and what he's done and a submission, an act of submission that you give your life to him. And for all of us who have, are your priorities matching up with Jesus? Are they the same? Are they similar? I believe that when we do this together as a church family, as a community, God will do amazing things, and he has. I can't even tell you some of the things that have happened just last week. I've got a stack of cards on my desk of people who received Christ just last Sunday, people who have been coming to faith, people whose lives have been changing. I know that when we set our priorities to the priorities of Jesus Christ, God moves. When we glorify him, guess what? It ends up being for our good. And so as we continue in that work, let's do it steadfastly. Let's not walk by and be like, well, I'm just going to leave that stone right there. Just let it collect some more dust. Let's align our priorities with those of Jesus Christ. This is a funny little letter, isn't it? 2,500 years old. Who says the Bible doesn't speak today? Who says it's not relevant to our lives Sounds like the things they wrestle with, we do too. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this little book, Haggai, this prophet. We don't know much about him. And yet he came and he delivered your words and they pierce our hearts. They were for your people, but not simply your people that were living in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. It's for your people for all time. And we are confronted with the question, what are our priorities? What are our priorities? Father, I pray that this family here, my brothers, my sisters here, that even in these moments, we would submit our hearts to you as we review our heart, as we review our actions, we would confess to you all those ways where we've been sidetracked. We've allowed distraction to come in that has distracted us from worshiping together, from being consumed by your work, by, by glorifying you with our lives, which ultimately will always be for our good. So, Father, we bring a heart of confession to you today. I pray that we would each review our heart, review our actions, and confess to you the parts of our lives that are not in alignment with your priorities. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning and they're just wondering who Jesus is and what he can do and whether this ancient letter has any bearing on their life. I pray that through your spirit you would have spoken to each one today, letting them see and know that Jesus is alive and that his word, his eternal word, he's the author of it. He's eternal father. You, you say he's the word in flesh. That, Father, this word speaks to us today, and it can transform every part of our being, our passions, our desires. It fills us with peace and hope and faith and joy and love and goodness. So, Father, we're grateful for the work of Christ and what he has done. We offer you our heart today. We offer you our lives today, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's respond today.
with this song. My heart is yours. Sing it as a prayer. Sing it out. Let's sing it together.